Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Homecoming, a podcast that provides the space for Asians, Asian Americans, and mixed heritage Asians of all backgrounds to share their stories, experiences, and insights about a variety of different topics. Everything from affirmative action to transracial adoption to diversity in pageantry. I'm your host, Angel Rena, and this episode is part two of my interview with Sydney G. And if you haven't listened to part one, in which Sydney talks about their upbringing in Cupertino, California, grappling with their racial identity and class privilege, and transitioning to UC Berkeley, I definitely encourage you all to do that. But before we get into this episode, in which Sydney is going to talk more about their time at Berkeley and more, um, I just wanted to say that I have attached in the episode description a link to different Asian American community and justice organizations um, compiled by Saspinella on Instagram. So thank you so much for doing that, Saspinella. And I've also attached a GoFundMe link for the um, sons of Hyunjung Grant, uh, who was uh, one of the victims of the recent Atlanta shooting. Um, and of course, there are so many more resources that you can find online and on social media. And, you know, I'll try to share some of those on Homecoming's Instagram and Facebook as well. Um but I also want to say, like, please take time for yourself off of social media, too. I know that's something that I've been doing for the past few days, and I found it pretty helpful. Um, but yeah, for me, you know, I'm just feeling a lot right now, thinking about a lot uh, that I don't really want to fully, like, flesh out right now uh, in this episode. Um but I really hope that I can do an off-season episode soon to debrief uh, a lot of the current events and just like, you know, just like pour out all of my thoughts and feelings and talk it out with like a friend, you know, a guest on the show. I think that would probably be helpful for me when the time is right. And also maybe bring up some questions and issues for you all to mull over as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about the eight victims of the shooting. I'm thinking about, um, you know, all of the BIPOC people throughout history who've been killed by racist white people. I'm thinking about the people who've been the victims of gun violence. I am thinking about all of you all and like how you all and you guys are trying to process through things and dealing with things. Um, yeah, so, you know, a lot of things to think about and a lot of people to think about. Um, but yeah, overall, please, please, please reach out. Um, if you need support, make sure to just, you know, like take take the time or space to do whatever you need to do for yourself, whether that's like staying by yourself, thinking things through, processing, reflecting, letting your emotions out, crying, or that's like talking to someone about it. Um, 
you know, I've talked a little bit about this in in previous episodes, I think in, in season one, but I don't know. Like, maybe this is not the time to go into all of this right now, um, but it just feels... I don't know. It just feels strange and very wrong for me to just like proceed with the podcast without reacting to current events, of course. But at the same time, it's like I have to like make a transition from talking about these events to the actual episode content, right? Um, yeah, but I mean... Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I guess, like, let's get into this episode with Sydney. Um, yeah, I mean, Sydney talks about a lot of important things in this episode about their life and just, like, immigration, race issues, disability issues in general. So I, I, I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you all didn't know, next week is actually the season two finale with uh, CEO and co-founder of the company Thunkable, Arun Cycle. Um, so yeah, thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for tuning in uh, next week to the season finale. And in general, thank you all for sticking around these past two seasons. I am very excited to continue uh, to continue to create content and have conversations and discuss topics that are needed, hopefully beneficial to our community. Um, yeah, so excited to do that and continue to do that in the future. But yes, thank you all so much for sticking around and I hope you enjoy this episode, part two of my interview with Sydney G. Um, and one question when it comes to race, like, do, do you feel like after you came to Berkeley, you mentioned that you uh, we're starting to identify more with being Asian American, being Chinese American, but do you feel like your orientation um, to and from whiteness changed as well? Or do you feel like it still stayed the same in terms of like, even though you were identifying more as Asian, you still felt like you had to somewhat assimilate into whiteness, just like you did in Cupertino? Yeah, I guess like, I still feel like I'm still to some extent trying to perform whiteness and like it is deeply um, uncomfortable at times because like, I feel like it, 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 I'm more conscious of it now because of I work in customer service. And so I'm like very like paying, like spending a lot of time thinking about how like my tone of voice, my wording, my facial expressions, like are, if they're conveying the kind of emotional um like tone that I'm trying to achieve. Um, and I think that actually does like in, in a way it's kind of part of that same tradition of like trying to assimilate, I guess, because like I've had even this year, just experience of like someone who ended up just being a really, just like trying to threaten me. But like this person like was also blaming me for like, basically like in, in like what he felt like were, I was like not 
interacting with him in in like the properly like I guess human way that he he would expect like he he would claim that like my um that I had like this really intense stare when I looked at him that made it really hard for him to talk to me or like he would say that like oh you like ignore me or like you're always just like obsessed with your screen or like you don't like you're cold like and I was like super like that was something I was already really anxious about because like I knew um even in some past experience like in high school like that I had there were some other Asian American students who sat near me and that I wanted to be better friends with but I was like really um socially anxious so I didn't like ever voice this and and I would just be like working on my homework and they like assumed that I wasn't really interested and so that's why they didn't really invite me to join the conversation and like because of that I'd always been a little bit like hyper vigilant I guess about um like how other people were perceiving me because I thought like well I might be like giving this impression somehow that I'm like not very personable or like interested in socializing um and I think later realizing like yeah it is like like when I've had situations where people nowadays like seem unable to like they they assume that I'm lying or that they like are seeming to misinterpret my like facial expressions and like what I'm saying like I've sort of felt like oh wow like I feel like now like because like I have to try super hard to try and like convey things in the way that they may understand and like that is like really like it is racialized like I think like like in some ways it like it's in, in some situations that's more explicit like say like oh if you have like an accent that indicates that you're not a native English speaker like that is like definitely like like it my parents would talk a lot about how that has hurt like um their peers or friends of like not being able to get like advance in the, the workplace at all because of that but I think there's also this whole level of like um like just and and I think it's also just tied to like being showing that you're neurotypical too but like there's always like even just like in in like using like so-called standard middle-class English for instance and like knowing the right terms to use like I think um like it there may be this unique flavor to that maybe like because being in Berkeley like a lot of people believe that they're so like progressive and like that they fight for social justice issues and so like I adjust my language accordingly too, like knowing what what things people are going to respond to and trying to do that but I think like that is still um for instance like I still know like oh yeah it wouldn't really be acceptable in this workplace setting for my like co-worker for instance to be using like speaking more with um AAVE like African-American vernacular English even though like that's also because it's like somehow still not deemed as professional somehow or like that's somehow not seen as like the universal norm that people are supposed to be using to communicate with each other um I think like just also like like I feel like I try really hard to kind of break out of like being like I guess siloed or like being kind of assigned a niche because of like like, like, I know that, yeah, I've had experience working in IT support, that's true. But like, even at work, like being one of the, what was for a long time, a, a very small minority of Asian employees, like I always wondered, like, why is it that people are asking me for help for these tech support issues? Like, even though we actually have IT staff, like, why am I being asked? Like, is it because I'm like young and Asian that they assume that I'm good at these things? So like, at least I still feel like I'm struggling a lot with like figuring out like am I actually genuinely like is this something that is a strength of mine or is it just that people have like assumed that of me and it's kind of just 
turned into a feedback loop like that, where I only do those things. And then I just get further like typecast. Um, I think also just, yeah, like I, I feel like I learned actually like in maybe the last year or last few years, more of a distrust of white people. And it's like weird because I guess I didn't really have that consciously growing up. And like, I actually sort of thought like it was something to aspire to. Like, I think like just like, I've heard some other peer describe it as like that, like their choice to like end up going to like a small liberal arts college in the Northeast was also um, influenced somehow by like feeling like there's too many Asians here. Like I should go somewhere with more white people. Um, and like, I, I wonder sometimes if my experiences would have been what it would have been like if I had done that because it was, I had mostly applied to those kinds of schools and ultimately didn't go. But um like, cause I, now I think about it as like, well, if I was already frustrated being in like a 20 percent of, in my classes, maybe, or less of like Asians or even of any people of color, then like, how would I have been in an environment where it was a lot more like, I, I, w- I would probably feel like I am even like more sticking out, I guess, as being like the other, but I, but I definitely just felt like just where I live now, it's like, I've noticed like when I am in Berkeley, there's like, especially just recently, like it's, it's intensified during this pandemic where I feel like actively pretty um, unsafe now after being like harassed and, and stalked in this and like stared at and like, even like someone attempted to physically hurt me um, because they mistook me for someone else who I assume maybe looks like me. Um, and like, I, became like very fearful of just going outside, like even just wearing a mask and like thinking like, are people assuming I have coronavirus or am I gonna be attacked again by a stranger? Um, and like when I did for a while have to stay with my parents um, who now live in Milpitas and um, they live in a mostly like Asian um, like neighborhood. And there's just like a lot more like, I think people of color there who are as opposed to like where where I live maybe most of the people of color are like students in college um, and are transient but like I, I realized when I came back to visit like that I kind of it was like I didn't realize I'd been holding my breath I guess in a certain way like I like don't think here I would feel this like oh I should I, I should carry pepper spray or like I should or like feeling like I was going to be um, scrutinized for wearing a mask even because of being Asian like I think like it does make me feel like yeah like I'm it's also just a frustration that comes up to me for me at work because of like hearing from a lot of our students especially like East Asian students about how much like they they felt like really unwelcome here um like students saying like oh I just I decided I I don't really want to study in the U.S. anymore because this country doesn't want people like me or like people saying like oh I feel like my my professors are like being really discriminatory toward me for being an international student and like not accommodating that I have this horrible time zone and I have to take class at like 3 a.m. like and like and especially like when there were times when um USCIS was like trying to push through some really draconian policies that would, you know, were basically kind of threatening, like, oh, if, you know, you can't meet these in-person class requirements, um, then you're going to get deported or something. Um, and in response to that, like, because I checked like the main email inbox for my work um, as part of my duties, I had to see a lot of like a really like anti-immigrant like rhetoric coming from like random people who were just like saying like, 
you know, this university should prioritize people who are from California and like what have international students or immigrants ever done that is good for this country. And like, I think like just hearing those things and then like also like, even in my like interaction with like the LGBTQ staff organization at work, like um, seeing like it became like a, a point of contention about whether we should, um, you know, first like, I guess, issue any sort of statement on in response to like police killings and Black Lives Matter. Um, and like this, like also that like someone else, like one of the the other like people of color in our volunteer and leadership team had suggested that maybe we consider signing a petition for like removing campus police. And um, there was just like a very stark contrast between like one of the white members who like was saying like, and, and it was also beginning of Pride Month, like saying like, oh, we shouldn't be like political. And like, you know, I think this is not a good thing to, you know, we don't want to alienate anyone by taking a stance. Like we should, um, and, and like, we live in an era of school shootings. So like, you know, it's, I can't support like removing police and like seeing that contrast between like those of us who um, had like personal experience of like being like profiled or like harassed or like, brutalized even by police and like I I really felt like they're like in whatever environment I'm in I guess at work even if they claim like to be like oh like you know we are like allies or like we you know care about racial justice but like there it doesn't feel like there's really that much space necessarily to like actually even be able to speak openly about like saying like you know what like I'm feeling really drained from work and it's not just from like just the the sheer workload during this pandemic but also just like because like it takes an emotional toll on me to like have to hear from students about like like I don't know like they're being like racially like discriminated against or like they can't afford to pay rent or like um and not be able to actually speak about it um like it I definitely felt like very much like I have no nothing I can say and it's like um difficult also to feel like even my coworkers who I do love and like feel like they are great people to work with but like to hear people say like oh like just those like Chinese names are just too hard like I can't learn them or like just like feel like you know like in our really long COVID-19 fact page on our website there's just one bullet point to talk about like oh I'm facing some kind of discrimination and like the, the department won't even like explicitly name anything about racism which is really like hard for me to feel like most of our students that we serve are like students of color and like there's I don't think there's any sort of it doesn't feel like there's anything near like adequate recognition of like th this is what we're operating in and like how that affects both like students and staff who and and I, I guess it made me wonder like if that was part of why like I mean, not only just due to things like, yeah, like a lot of international students couldn't be, um, could, wouldn't be able to work for my department, um, even though I think it's always better for people who have that lived experience to be the ones who do the work. But like, because of like, you know, things around their visa status, they couldn't do a job like this even if they wanted, but also just like knowing like, oh, maybe like, it's also harder for like, people to like, stay in this field too, if they're like, personally really impacted by like just hearing the things that that students like want help with that like um like maybe it is easier for people to have 
to be able to do this work, which is like a lot of emotional labor too, if they, they don't have that like feeling of maybe like secondary trauma too, from like having to, to deal with that in their day to day. I also want to ask you about another big part of your identity that is um, uh, invisible disabilities. So do you want to talk a little bit about like what are invisible disabilities? What does that mean for people who have them? And what is your experience with uh, invisible disabilities? I feel like there's probably like a lot of things that might be like able to be under that whole realm of invisible disabilities because I feel like it is like a very subjective characterization it's not like um, I'm sure like for instance for some people like even if they have um, like a condition that like some people might see as very more like traditionally like a physical disability they it, it can still be like invisible for instance like um, there's like a manga that I like a lot that is um I hear the sunspot and like it features pretty prominently like deaf and hard of hearing characters and like some of the struggles that are shown there of like deaf characters who um, maybe have a little bit of hearing or they've just spent like a lot of their lives trying to pass as hearing and to um, just get along with like hearing folks and um, how oftentimes like people don't really recognize that they're deaf or like or if they do they still don't really feel like oh actually I should also do something myself to like make this more accessible um for the person like I like maybe I should learn sign language or something and not just like kind of blame someone or like not bother trying to repeat myself if they couldn't understand what I was saying um so I guess for me like I feel like a lot of my disabilities are invisible like I guess one aspect of that is like because they weren't really visible to me for a long time like I think it would have been different if say like I perhaps like couldn't walk or like had a like spinal injury or something like I'm sure it would have been very clear to me that like oh yeah I have some aspect of my body or my mind that um I guess is going to be perceived by other people as marking me as different and not like able-bodied but um for me like I mean it started more like with I had a lot of things like as a kid like I've like allergies I've always had like chronic skin issues and digestive issues and some of those things have gotten more severe as I've gotten older so like there's stuff that falls more in like a chronic illness realm um that people don't readily know about me um and also like I mean maybe it's more of an artificial separation to try to put a difference between like body and mind but I also have what are considered like mental illnesses like depression and like both generalized and social anxiety and like more recently um got diagnosed with PTSD but um these things are also just things that like people don't necessarily know about me unless like I choose to express or like verbalize it to people um and I guess that's really what makes them invisible in that sense because it's not something like people could look at me and know like I think in a lot of situations I still um pass quote-unquote as like not being disabled and I mean this has even come up like when I I worked for a nonprofit that mainly um focuses on like programming and services and other things for like people who are blind or low vision 
And like one time I wore like a shirt that I had bought, um, which was like, it said like accessibility matters. And it has like many different like icons, like um, say like picture of like hands, which is representing like ASL. And like, there's a picture of like someone in a wheelchair and like picture of like a, like a brain and stuff like that. And it's also like, um, these pictures are like in different colors so that makes it look like a rainbow. Um, so I, I really like, I chose this primarily cause I like wanted to kind of express both. Like I got, I feel like in a lot of settings I'm in that disability is often the ignored, um, I guess social category or like axis of oppression. Um, and so I wanted to bring that like more, more explicitly um, into environments I was in just by having that like visually as a reminder, but also like I thought, oh yeah, it's got like rainbow colors. So like maybe this is also a way I can simultaneously show like I'm also like part of this, the LGBTQ community. Um, and then, so I wore this at, and, and a coworker saw the shirt. And so she asked me like, oh, like, where did you get this shirt from? Like, um, were you like, you know, previously working for some other like disability org or like, um, I think like just the way she was talking, she kind of just assumed like, this is like a, you know, non-disabled person who's just like an ally who like cares a lot about like disability issues. And so I said, no, actually like I'm disabled myself. And like, she was, um, pretty surprised. So I think like that's kind of um, interest, like the aspect of it that's maybe different is like, I could, I mean, it, it takes a lot of energy, t certainly, but like, I can conceal my disabilities to a large extent if I want to. Um, like in work or school, I may be able to get by without accommodations, but it is still like, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's like, actually like felt okay for me to do that it's just more like I feel felt for a long time also I just didn't think I had any legitimate reason to be struggling so I just sort of thought well I just need to like try harder like this is just my fault and I need to like handle it on my own um, and I think that is kind of a, a an issue too with a, a lot of how people see disability is like um, they kind of see it more as like some sort of individual thing like oh someone is sick or like they have some sort of like problem maybe that they've developed or born with and that that needs to be addressed in like a more like a medicalized way or maybe just on even like in a workplace like it's seen as very individualistic of like some individual is gonna you know talk to HR and they're gonna have to get all these documentation showing that like they need accommodations and then they decide on a case by case basis, whether to grant those things, as opposed to looking at it more holistically of like, maybe there are things in our work culture or like the environment or like what tools people are being given or like, maybe even just how flexible the work is with in terms of like, can you like adjust your schedule? Like, can you take time off for medical appointments? Like, can you work remotely sometimes? Like, I, I feel like it, it gets seen as more like, oh, no, we're just going to like work with individuals who have problems and then try to, you know, fix those or, or work with those as opposed to saying like, well, actually, there's like these issues that are kind of endemic. Um, and it, it would probably benefit a ton of people, but especially people who ha are disabled to um, maybe address those. Um, and I guess it's kind of weird because it does feel like um, for me, like, there's a lot of identities of mine that are more invisible, like, and that might be also including, like, say, if I'm, like, I think there's a lot of times when, like, people didn't even know I was queer um, or trans necessarily, like, and it was kind of jarring for me because I, well, 
one, like sometimes this has happened even after I've taken like hormones for several years. And I'm just like, I don't know that like my voice, like if someone doesn't see me is an indication like that I'm like, I guess oftentimes like people think still that I'm a woman based on how I look, but, um, or just like, there's times like, I, I feel like I'm pretty open about my identities on social media and stuff like that. But like when sometime like I posted something kind of cr- criticizing, like, cause there was this other post that was going around where like people were saying like, Oh, it's like, you know, it helps you to like be broaden your perspective and be a better person. If you're like, you know, friends with gay people. And I was just like, sort of like I was taking a jab at it saying like this is so like really tokenistic and weird and like you know like you shouldn't have to like it's not like supposed to be at the expense of people who are more marginalized for like someone who is privileged in that aspect to like learn to be like a better person or like you know get rid of their um I guess prejudices or something and so when I made fun of this post or something um someone commented saying like they were kind of saying like, oh, like, well, that's like, you know, really like rude of you. Like, you know, I I think like, you know, a lot of you could like people like you could really benefit from like knowing like a gay person. And I was just like, wait a minute. Cause like, I I just didn't realize like they didn't even know like I was like LGBTQ and I was like, um, and then like, yeah. So some other people kind of joined the comments and were like, yeah, like this is not like a, you know, straight person that you're talking to right now, but um but I feel like that about with disability, I guess that um, I think it, it for a long time also kept me from even trying to seek that those kind of spaces or even like, even like, I, I'm sure I could have benefited from accommodations like a lot earlier, like in, in my schooling, but like I didn't get accommodations until my third year of college because like, I just never knew that I qualified or like, I, I thought like, oh, like, it, this isn't meant for someone like me, like I'm you know, I, I'm not disabled enough, I guess, is what I thought, because, like, like, I was, like, well, I'm still doing stuff in my daily life, like, I go to work, like, I go do my chores, like, I take showers, and I eat, and regularly, and all that, so I always just kind of thought, well, like, I'm, you know, I'm not legitimately, like, you know, facing any sort of issue, like, so I, I, it doesn't make sense for me to get more help, but um, I think it takes a lot of, like, unlearning like some like internalized ableism that I have like even toward myself because I realized too like when I have been in like spaces like for and by disabled people like nobody there is trying to gatekeep me or like deem that my experience doesn't make me worth being there like there which I think was actually really gratifying because I think a lot of situations um I feel really like I'm not enough of something or like I'm I'm not fitting in properly with that community um and it it always feels like i have to leave part of me behind in order to be part of a space because a lot of times it doesn't feel like they can hold all those things at once um so i think honestly that's also sometimes an issue like not only with lgbtq spaces like where i feel like very it's frustrating that like i can be in an area that is like mostly people of color and like go to a lot of like LGBTQ events or organizations and find like almost everyone there's white and like nobody even kind of questions why there's an absence or like why they might have failed to actually make a space that can like center or prioritize like people of color so that they actually feel safe to go there. Um, And like the fact that I guess they don't notice that absence and like the, it's like stark for me too, because like when 
like I noticed that in my university as well of like the staff organization um, for LGBTQ staff, like there's probably like a ton of people on that list serve. Cause sometimes I find out people I didn't like, I knew like are actually on it, but they just don't like ever interact with the listserv or like go to events and then but then if I go to events that are specifically for like queer and trans people of color or if I go to like the events by like the staff orgs that are based on like ethnic and racial affinity groups then like then I see all these like queer and trans people of color staff and I'm just like oh so like it's very like clear to me like yet like the spaces for LGBTQ people aren't really spaces that are all for all LGBTQ people um but um, and that happens too in disability spaces of like, they do tend to be like really white dominated. And I think there's just like issues that come up with not only like, maybe there's not really like a willingness for mainstream disability orgs to like really engage with like racism, for instance, um, and, and also to see how like they're implicated in that. But all, there's like, just, yeah, like times when like it does feel like also like there's it is not like leadership by the most impacted because like um yeah like there's like class is also something that comes up that like I feel like I have to name in those spaces but it is uncomfortable um because knowing that like yeah like a lot of disabled people in this country are poor and like those are due to like structural like reasons um like where like say for instance if you make a little bit too much money like you might want to work but then it could mean like you don't qualify for anymore for like Medicaid and like having attendant care and stuff. And like, so it's not even worth like trying to make money because you could lose like the best possible health care that you could get or the ability to have like, um, I guess like people to assist you so that you could, you know, participate in your daily life activities. So, um, so it does feel like kind of, I guess, like, I, I feel like in some ways then I am a privileged person in those spaces. Cause I'm like, yeah, like I do, you know, I come from class privilege and like, I don't have to make that kind of sacrifice. Like I'm, you know, still dealing with other stuff, like deciding, like, do I even want to bother going to like therapy because it's just so expensive out of pocket. But, um, but like in other ways, it's like weird too, feeling like, yeah, like there's not a ton of people of color in most disability spaces and it like what, what contributions they, or like, they do make is not it's not really like seen as like part of that or part of the history or or even like that it's important to actually be like looking at what specifically like disabled people of color are facing because like um i think there's sort of like conflation that happens where people might compare one axis of oppression to another but not really like even grapple with like there's people who are like facing multiple of these at the same time and like their experience is like really materially different due to that and like I, I feel like there has been some kind of responses to that happening like say like um I've seen like groups in my area that like form specifically because they just feel like well we want this to be like led by and centering like disabled people of color and you know all these existing disability spaces don't do that or um just like even things like the hashtag like disability so white which i think like these things are interesting more like because yeah they they do generate a lot of conversation about these things but it's also kind of um frustrating when i hear from people who have like been part of those like disability movements for for many many years and seeing like the problem is still here like it has not changed substantially i think and like 
and it just feels like every little thing like I, I i can also really share the frustration of a lot of people that um this pandemic suddenly has made a lot of people care more about accessibility stuff that they never really like felt that urgency around because like you know a lot of us have like maybe like people who might have felt like oh yeah like i it would be a lot easier for me to do my work if i could just you know work from home and stuff or like maybe like have like i don't know captioning provided on um like the events or something but i've always been told by some organization or my employer that like it's too expensive or like it's not feasible and then all of a sudden like in a week or two of shelter in place going to affect all of a sudden all these things are happening and it just like makes it like i guess some people are, it's like when people say like oh it's like someone who doesn't you know believe coronavirus is real until they catch it it's like kind of a frustration of seeing like oh wow like it was just a matter of political will like you could have made these things happen a lot earlier but like it, it's like people didn't care until like i guess maybe the more like the able-bodied and the people who were like didn't like have like additional like maybe burden of things like say like oh like i don't have transportation to work or like i need childcare. um it's like somehow those things weren't taken as you know it was just responded to with a kind of shrug and like sorry too bad until like then when it just all of a sudden does start affecting people who weren't like being like affected by that this whole time, then it like, then it, it suddenly causes people to care. Um, and yeah, I guess like that comes up too with like people just saying like some folks, like I, I feel like um, since I'm someone who spent, does a lot of my socializing online, um, like that's also the the case for a lot of disabled folks who like, you know, it, it has not been accessible for them to like go out and into a lot of community spaces, even if they wanted to. So like a lot of people did do their kind of trying to build community or social support networks through online spaces. And so like then seeing people like express like, oh, like during this pandemic now I'm like feeling very isolated and like I, you know, I can't go out. And, and then like, I guess like others who like respond by saying, well, yeah, like it does really suck, but like also some of us have been like in that situation for years and years and years because like there's not like been this like care to like actually make sure these spaces like could be like accessible to them and that it actually mattered for them to be there. And like, as opposed to kind of seeing their absence as like, oh, that it's unfortunate, but like, you know, just moving on. Um, and like, it's definitely caused a lot of like ugly things to happen too. And like, um, even in like organizing spaces I've been in where like there was a plan to have like a pretty big training that would go on like all day in a space that was not um, going to even be like wheelchair accessible and stuff. And like, you know, the organizer was just kind of, organizers were just moving forward with it. And then someone else who had been, um, had been invited to help with the planning objected to it. Cause like she was um, disabled and was saying like, wait, like you're just going to go ahead and like, you're, you're not even doing kind of some basic things to like make this event accessible. And like, she was really like frustrated that people just kind of swept that under the rug and did not care. So she like dropped out of it. And of course it led to a lot of weird stuff happening too, where one of the people who was organizing it kind of, blamed the other person by saying like, oh, you know, she didn't, you know, she hasn't really been showing up in this process. Like, you know, why is she like, you know, she's criticizing this, but she didn't put in work. Like I spent all this time into this event and I'm disabled too. But like, I guess it just, I feel like these things 
happen a whole lot. And like, it is bizarre too, because I, I think it comes up a lot in like, I feel like it's also an example of an invisible, invisible disability when like, say someone has um, cancer, for example, like Chadwick um, Boseman, like that was a pretty big deal. And like a lot of, um, a lot of, I followed a lot of the conversations about it on Twitter as well, because people were saying like, oh, look, like, you know, once they found out like he died of cancer and like all these people who are like not disabled are talking about hit like, oh, he's like so brave. Like, you don't know what battles people are fighting, um, you know, like under the surface or like, you know, they, they like would cast him as kind of like this, this hero or like this sort of like just this individual facing tragedy and stuff. And like, and then other people were kind of saying like, whoa, like this is like people like don't one, like, don't recognize cancer as a disability, but also, like, like, yeah, like, it seemed, like, so, I guess people were saying, like, well, this is, like, kind of messed up, like, he's being valorized, and some people are even using his, his death like this to, to justify saying, like, look, like, he was doing all this work, you know, he was working super hard while he had cancer, so what's your excuse, and, like, people were saying, like, you know, that's really fucked up, like, we don't want, like, it's not, it's not good for us to, like, kind of, use this as like just kind of a a proof that you know he should everyone should be so productive and you know should be persevering no matter how much like suffering they might be undergoing and like not really questioning like why like you know like why why did he even feel like he had to do that you know like how come there wasn't like any way for him to like be able to just rest and yeah i guess like it it was I, I appreciate, I, I think this is a situation where like hearing from like black disabled folks was also really like um, better for like to really get that context as well of like people like making the connections to about like, you know, like part of the reason it's hard for some of us to like talk about disability in like our, even amongst our like loved ones who are also black is like that, like we have this whole like history of like of like having been, you know, our ancestors having been enslaved and like, and our like being like, our worth was very much defined by like ability to perform. And like, even now, like, because of this, like all these like layers of systemic racism that we still face, like having that pressure to like, be able to like be like superhuman and like, you know, work twice as hard for half as much and stuff and like, those things also being connected, like why it would be difficult maybe to like, say like, to be claiming that you're like disabled and like trying to like get support around it when like, it's like, we're already like, so like, I guess oppressed in the basis of race. Like why, like, it, it's like, there's also, I guess that it does go back to like the whole like problems where like people don't really grasp that intersectionality is like this like, also a lens through which like you can understand like how those like many components of a person all work together to make an experience that is different than if you just had you know one one or more of those things be different like just like people seeing it as like oh you're just you get to just be disabled or you get to just claim being queer or trans as your primary identity if you're white but like for a lot of us who are are racialized that's we don't have that luxury, I guess, because it's like the first thing people see about us is is something else that um, is out of our control as well. Hmm. And and speaking of intersectionality, um, do you feel like after 
you went to Berkeley and were sort of immersed in all of these different um, affinity spaces and stuff like that, that you just got a better sense of what intersectionality meant. And how, how do you feel like your um, Asian and your queer and trans and your disabled identities intersect? Yeah, I guess like one thing about going to Berkeley and just like more like even after graduating, like through like meeting people through those like spaces that are safe for like queer and trans Asians or like Asian leftists. Like I think um, it's definitely kind of shown me one like that there's actually a huge amount of people who like probably share some of those identities with me or like, you know, these are, but like, it's not something I would have known, I guess, without having interacted with people through these contexts. And like, I think that's like, like, I think it's definitely came to like, make me like wonder about things like say like one of the groups I I follow is like a subtle Asian mental health group or something on Facebook and like I've seen a lot of stuff in there that's actually made me like rethink my own like life or like how I've like kind of perceived myself um just like seeing like the amount of people for example who are like I never you know got diagnosed with ADHD as a kid and then now as an adult I'm like saying like oh I actually have this and then for the first time maybe like seeking therapy or like actually getting like medications that helped with some of those like I don't know like maintaining focus um and like I remember like also talking to people on another like social media where someone said like they wondered if sometimes a lot of times like having neurodivergence doesn't get picked up on if you're like a a, a, like a child of immigrants who's also like a person of color because like sometimes people like maybe have just perceived that you're maybe if you're communicating in a way that's a little bit like non-normative or like um people just kind of attributed to it like oh you you know you don't really know english or like it's just like some you know asian cultural thing or whatever um and i feel like that um also just like kind of i think having to like get past like because i always felt like it was kind of i would question myself too of like say like when i started to identify as like disabled like wondering like oh am i just trying to like you know find excuses or something or like am I just trying to like find everything that does like try to find any sort of marginalized identity that I can claim because like maybe on some level it doesn't make me feel better about being privileged in other aspects like does it make me feel better about my class privilege or does it make me like somehow feel like less either complicit in or like benefiting from like anti-blackness or like white supremacy if I like can feel like, oh, actually in this other like realm, like I am also being oppressed, but like, but I think like, just like being able to like see one, like, yeah, a lot of these things always do overlap and that's like not by accident, I don't think. Um, Like, I think for instance, like I noticed that in disability communities, there's like a lot more, it feels like queer and trans people like than in just the general population. And I think like, um, I mean, there's type, like theories people have for that like some people say well if you've had to like you know come to a politicized identity about disability and you've learned to see like say for example like that like see things from a social model of disability as opposed to a biological model like maybe like it it causes people to go through a lot of self-reflection that may lead to also um being able to like perceive themselves as like um I don't know, like being non-normative in other aspects or like to be more open to those kinds of things um, because they've had to like think about it in a way that um, 
like, I don't know, say like a non-disabled person didn't have to. Um, and I think, yeah, like it also does make me kind of have to like, n like realize like there are that this is a lot of why like human people, like lives are very messy and like complicated and even that our own behavior or like thought processes processes can be like really con like contradictory at times um because like yeah like there's just I think it helps me to kind of situate more like um like how my experiences have been shaped by like the privileges I hold but also like the ways that like I am also like occupying like a position where like I definitely do not have the power and like I am being like I guess oppressed based on those things like I for instance like feel like learning about things like say like racial triangulation theory or like having or talking to someone who like actually framed like she said like I don't like calling a modern minority a myth or like or a stereotype just because because she was saying she felt like that was kind of euphemistic or like making it just seem like some sort of like you know misinformation that simply needed to be corrected and and saying like it's actually deeper than that like this is she calls it a strategy because she says it's a way of also like kind of to to pit like especially like maybe like asians against like other people of color um and to like i think like those sorts of things help because like yeah like these conversations are like ongoing like i feel like in some cases there isn't like a, a ready answer that like people may come to but i think like that just the, the process of actually like thinking about those things and like using that to like guide um how you act and like just how you like i think that it, it is important because like i've also noticed just like in a lot of the asian spaces i'm in right now there's some ongoing conversation that's been raised because somebody um was saying that she was wondering um if east asians are like the white people of poc or the white people of asians and like it's led to a lot of like I guess discourse, but I think it's been like useful for me to like read those perspectives as well, where like people are kind of situating it more and like seeing like, well, you know, yeah, on one hand, like it is contextual, like as an Asian person in the US, you're definitely like being racialized as like an other and, and, and treated like partially based on that, but also saying like, well, it's also like not like some, some like, times like even if you like are like you know like for instance like I think some people were claiming like oh no like that's not a fair comparison because like there are many East Asians who are like poor like undocumented and like like how can you say these people like have something like white privilege but then there's also like the whole component of like well who gets seen as Asian most readily like it's usually East Asians and like even in spaces that claim to be pan-Asian there's a lot of like times the what kind of issues are focused on or like whose voices are being heard or like can be very like just centered on East Asian experience or like assuming that even a certain class experience within East Asians is the norm as well. Um, and also like saying like, well, like, you know, there's say like maybe for folks who are like from who's like heritage come from China, for example, like that, like the, even while like there's a lot of, things that are really great about like the revolutions that have happened there like and about like 
I guess, policies that were carried out in order to, like, supposedly, I guess, turn this into a communist country instead of, like, a capitalist one. Like, at the same time, like, I think there's ways that, like, say, like, for instance, the Chinese government, like, would, and, and even, like, I guess the people, to some extent, might carry out, like, I guess, really an oppression and, and silencing and, like, violence against, like, um, perhaps more, like, ethnic minorities in within that those borders of the nation or like or even like the ways that like countries such as japan may have like actually been imperialist themselves and like um like occupied like land that still contains like indigenous people in like the asian and pacific island regions so like i think i feel like that it does help me to kind of understand to like where my positionality is um like to realize like it's not just like as much as like I see like for instance saying like Asian or person of color like these things are um like they are I guess supposed to be terms that help to bring together people who have some shared kind of oppression so that they can actually like mobilize more effectively together but like but at the same time, like, there's a real obscuring function that these, like, kind of terms play. And I think, like, I have to think, like, what am I communicating to? If I choose to use those terms in specific contexts, like, what am I trying to say about myself, which might actually be, like, I guess, trying to portray me in a certain way strategically, even if, like, um, I guess, like, there are situations where it actually could be damaging for me to say that instead of naming something more specific. Because, like, definitely that has happened where, like, I think that's happened with the whole like shift to using BIPOC, like black indigenous people of color instead of POC. And like, I've noticed like there's actually like many spaces where they've changed the language that they use, but like ultimately like still like they might say this is, you know, it's a group of BIPOC, but there are no black or indigenous people there, let alone like a centering of like their um, struggles or like people, maybe individual refers to themselves as a BIPOC, but they are like, you know, also an Asian and like, and in a setting where like, sometimes I wonder like, so what exactly is like, I, I don't think necessarily people are always thinking about it consciously, but I just, I feel like, um, I guess like in, in some ways, like the terrain of language and like what, what like words people use does also carry implications for like how, um, what kind of like, practices also that people want to embody or like what are like the the values actually that you're trying to advance as opposed to like maybe just sticking something that's a little more progressive and like um seems more inclusive on the surface onto something and it's actually maybe doing harm because it's like erasing the very people who are supposed to be included hmm. yeah there's there's definitely a lot to think about there and language is definitely super messy especially when you think about like like what a visual culture society is and not everything is on the surface right and when we start putting terms to just like the visual culture to what we see like it can be quite superficial and not always and not always like encapsulate everything that we want it to um but yeah i guess the takeaway there is language is messy um everything is super messy but uh, one of my last questions to you sydney um i'm just thinking about like 
just looking to the future, I know you've you've shared a ton of insights already, but looking to the future, um, like what what are your goals and do you feel like you have the goal of trying to make some sort of structural change? Because that's that that seems like from what I know of you so far and what we talked about so far, um, it seems like you are super passionate about uh, being vocal about a lot of issues when it comes to um, LGBTQ rights um, and like disability representation, et cetera, et cetera. So looking forward, like, do you have plans to like, hopefully try to make some structural changes when it comes to like racism, LGBTQ and um, disability discrimination, wealth disparities, uh, given your identity, but also your privilege in some of these spaces? Like, what are you hoping to accomplish in the future? And it's also okay if you don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm I'm struggling a lot with like, because I do definitely feel like the root causes of a lot of suffering in this world are systemic and like, and that a lot of like what, how this world is operating today it's it's by design like I don't think it's more like some people might say the systems are broken but I I would probably be saying like they're working exactly as they're meant to um and and from that I guess from that tack like I see it as like um it's really like very radical transformation that is needed to um really make a world I guess that where people can thrive um and I I just don't know sometimes like how is really the way to like go about achieving that. Cause like, I know like originally when I got to college, like I, I picked psych as my major and focused on clinical psych. Cause I, I at that time was kind of just, I think it, it came from my just personal experience of feeling like I'm hurting. And like, I think I, I perceive it as like, oh, okay, maybe like this is a way I can learn somehow to, you know, support myself and also like help my friends who like I see struggling as well. Like, and I, I had a lot of, I guess I, I ended up being very disillusioned or disappointed by at least how mainstream psychology is taught because I felt like it was very focused on individuals and trying to like fix, I guess, what was wrong with them. Or even like, I guess even something like therapy, just like trying to like maybe better help someone to cope with like a shitty situation or like that they, the reality that they live in rather than like actually being more like no, we should change the reality, not just have you like have to, I don't know, be able to self-care your way out of it somehow to, to make it through. Um, and I guess like I ended up kind of not being sure, like for that reason, cause like I originally thought maybe I would want to be some kind of counselor. And then um, over time kind of wondered, like, is this really even the way to go? Like, I don't know if this is the way that I could feel like I could actually meaningfully make any kind of difference. Cause I think I, it, it also just comes from like me being really, really pessimistic of like not really feeling like, well, it's not just like individuals can simply do something and it would somehow change the world. Like, I feel like that it's not really that, that simple, I guess. And sometimes feeling just very powerless too. Like sometimes it's like, I might be spending all my time like sorting recycling and compost into the right bins, but like, that's not going to change that. Like maybe, maybe like, you know, corporations are doing the most pollution and destroying like people's like source of fresh water, for example. So um, I, 
I, I guess I feel like because of like my, I guess, orientation and like toward like what I think the world needs or like what needs to be different, it, it has generally led me to like work in either nonprofits or like the public sector so far. Um, and I, I think there's some aspect of that, like I'm probably drawn to it also because of like knowing that generally speaking, my coworkers are there because they are, are passionate about it and not and like because they care about like, I guess, being of service to other people as opposed to going there for money or or fame. But um, then I also I feel like I had a lot of critiques as well of like, quote unquote, the nonprofit industrial complex when I was in there and like feeling like, oh, in a way they're like more invested in their own continued existence rather than eradicating the whole reason they had to exist in the first place. And um, and now like, I guess part of why I'm in the public sector now too is like right now, especially in this pandemic, I am really grateful to be part of like one of the few jobs like that has a union representing me so that it has a little bit of extra protection um, where like, for instance, I still got a, a little bit of a pay raise this year because it's part of our contract. And like, I wouldn't like, whereas like, I know, like for other folks, they don't have like those things, like they, they're not even at least in like theory supposed to be like paid like overtime or like going to be protected from being like, I don't know, furloughed due to the budget deficit. But um, I just, I don't know. Sometimes like, I feel like because I'm still in a pretty entry level position and I'm pretty new to, my work life overall, like I um, don't have a lot of say in my workplace. And I think that's really frustrating for me because I feel like there are actually like thousands of students and like scholars and staff who are impacted by us. But like, I don't really have any kind of meaningful say um, in like what our messaging is or our strategy. And like, knowing that, like, honestly, like, I, I think a lot of people have said also, like, you know, there's, you can't really change that environment too much especially by yourself like I, I feel like that's probably why a lot of people I, I had loved and respected actually like for instance like left the department where I work and have gone elsewhere because they just felt like you know I, I couldn't do what was needed here like either either if it was just like oh I I expressed that I wanted to learn new skills and like advance in the workplace and like they've never been given that support for professional development or it could be more like something like substantive of like you know I tried to bring up to like our leadership that like hey like I'm hearing a lot of students saying they can't afford food to eat like what are we going to do about it and then being told like I don't want to talk about that um so I think I, I I sometimes like I don't know like I I sometimes wonder if maybe like that just means like I might need to just see my my work as being kind of divorced from the broader like real work that I want to do in the world because like I think like um, maybe there's just limitations to what can be achieved. Like it might just be better to like, see this as like, I need to pay the rent and like, that's what I'm doing this for. And I'll save my energy, whatever's left of it to, to like do stuff that is more maybe subversive and like outside of these institutions, because like, even then, like, I do feel like this kind of tug of like, sometimes over time, like feeling like I'm going to be like, more like inclined to do pragmatic things and like I, I was always very critical of that because I felt like a lot of times people who would tell you to be like realistic were just were compromising too much and were like because my thought was always like when you have to like negotiate with somebody like you're always going to have to compromise so you should always demand the highest because you know you're, you're going to be you're going to be forced I guess to take something that's a concession and not the full 
the full thing that is needed for like liberation. Um, and, and yet still, like I, I did get talked into, I guess, from like speaking to another staff who I felt like was also kind of shared a lot of my, my critique and like frustration with this university. Um, and they are also like Asian and queer and trans. And like, they had encouraged me to, uh, apply to like this, um, chancellor's advisory committee at the university for like LGBTQ communities. And they said like, you know, like, oh, this isn't just like, you know, having meetings for the sake of meetings, like you'll have some kind of say that like would hopefully make leadership listen to you in terms of like recommending policy changes. And so I was like, okay, like, you know, that seems like something that'd be um, worth doing, I guess. So like I, I did, I applied to it and I'm now um, one of the newer people in this committee, but I just... I don't know, like, I'm, I am realizing, like, I'm sure there's even frustration from people on this committee of, like, saying, like, yeah, like, years ago, you know, the, the campus was supposed to, like, you know, implement some kind of policy on, like, gender neutral bathrooms or, like, letting people use their live names in school records. And, you know, there's, they're dragging their heels on it, like, it's not happening. And you, you can't really do anything to force them to do it. Because, like, in, in the end, it's just an advisory role. Um, you're not, like, the chancellor, but, like, but then I'm just like, well, I don't know, like, it does feel like in a way I'm like, even if like, it's trying to like, have a broad scope of work, like, I know that one of the reasons I'm like, was interested was because like, I knew there's actually work being done within the committee um, to support like campus efforts to defund and abolish the campus police. And I, I'm very, like, I feel very strongly about that. But I um, feel like also just going through things like this, like trying to work through this university's existing channels is like ultimately like a reformist measure. And so like, I don't, I don't know that that's really going to be able to do enough. It's like, people are saying like, yeah, like that's kind of been the reaction too. like, if you try to like, you know, push for something, then the campus will probably re respond with something that's just not going to address the ultimate problem. Like, they're just like saying like, you know, the issue might be like, hey, like, you know, um, the police have been really making like black students and trans students on campus unsafe like instead of the response being like well we should get rid of these police somehow it's just more like oh we should give them sensitivity training about their racial implicit biases or to you know call people by the right pronouns when they like you know shove them into the ground so it's just like I like feel like I guess I'm, I'm kind of like trying to not be too cynical I guess to think like well one hand, like maybe there are situations where I see it, I can see it as more like a harm reduction thing, like, like of like, yeah, I do. I, I don't, I, I try not to use that term anymore. But like, just thinking of like, yeah, like I vote in every election, even though I don't really believe in electoralism as a strategy for change, because like, I feel like, well, maybe, at least it might make it make some kind of difference in my local matters, maybe it would help some people to like, I don't know, like, have a little better quality of living or like, take the I guess, boot off their neck a little bit more. But like, but I, I guess I still feel like I grapple with like, what, what exactly, like, is there something I can do in my power that actually would lead to like some really substantial change? Or like, is the most I can do is just to try to help people to survive um, as it is. And yeah, I think that will come up too, even for me to decide, like, what do I want to do as a career as well? Because I think I have, um, like, yeah, like, like, even though I know there's even jobs, like, you know, some people work explicitly as organizers for like some community based like social justice or but 
um, with that, even I wonder like both about like sustainability of it, like, cause knowing that I already burned myself all a lot doing things, but also just like thinking like, is it really going to be able to achieve that? Like when ultimately like say you're, you're beholden in some way, like the funding from where you work being like from like, I don't know, companies or big foundations or, or like the government, like there's probably a limit on how much you can really push the boundaries there before like you'll get retaliated against. So I, yeah, I'm struggling with that and wondering too, like this is also something I'm thinking about, about whether I should really invest a lot of my energy in, I guess, campus-based official staff organizations, or if maybe that's like perhaps not the best use to like, if I want something to change significantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially since you work at Berkeley, right? Like these large institutions, like it's tough to make huge changes um, unless you look at like, a really, really extended time scale. But I think, I mean, I think you should just try to bring your end goals and your passions and your interests to every space that you're in. And it seems like you're already doing that. Um, like, I think just from hearing about what you do at the ISO, like, you're helping international students out, taking their calls, like listening to their, like what grievances they have about the university, et cetera, et cetera. So like, you're definitely doing important work. And I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, like it can be tough to make these serious changes, but I think, you know, all we can do is do our best in particular spaces and maybe like draw a certain line when it comes to the expense of like comes at the expense of your sanity and your and your mental health but i guess we just we we need people to keep pushing and keep like pushing boundaries and pushing against existing norms at these large places but uh, yeah it's an it's an ongoing struggle i guess and i Hope like wherever you go next and like whatever you decide to do next, like you will be hopefully somewhat satisfied with what you're doing and that you can continue to push boundaries too. Um, yeah, Sydney, that is all the questions that I think I want to ask for now. I know we definitely could have talked for a lot more and about a lot of other issues. Um, just so the listeners know, like when you requested to be on the podcast, like you mentioned that, you know, you majored in psychology and I know, you know, you wanted to discuss like the limitations of nonprofits and social work, um, you know, healthcare, housing and gentrification. And we definitely like didn't have the time to get to all these different issues today in depth. But if anyone is interested in connecting with you to discuss like these issues or just talk about anything you mentioned in the podcast today, um, where can they find you? Where can they reach out to you? Uh, I'm pretty active on social media. I guess my most active is uh, Facebook, which you can find either by searching my name or like, um, I guess, facebook.com slash sydney.y.ji. Um, and alternately, like um, you could find me um well, I'm on other social media like uh, Twitter and Instagram and stuff, so you can always feel free to ask me for it. But um, otherwise, I'm I'm totally fine with people just emailing me. Um, my email is just um, 
first name dot y dot my last name at gmail.com. Perfect. Okay. So thank you, Sydney, again so much for coming on. And everyone who is listening, make sure to show Homecoming some love by showing, uh, by following our social media at Homecoming Pod on Instagram and Facebook, subscribing to the podcast wherever you listen, and giving us those five stars. And I will see you all next week with a brand new episode. Thank you so much, Sydney, once again for coming on to Homecoming. Thank you for having me.